0: Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. All right, if you have your Bible, turn over to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 12, and I don't know how long we've been there, but we're going to be there again and probably more, so it's a great chapter. A lot of chapters in the book of Acts are great chapters, so... We're going to talk a little bit of a different perspective this morning than we've been talking about Acts chapter 12. But before we go to Acts chapter 12, just let me remind you why we are studying the book of Acts and why it is so important, I believe, in our lives, especially in the day in which we live. Now, you know my belief, and I hope it's your belief, because it's what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. He is coming back. And he will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is coming. That is 100% guaranteed fact because of God's word. He's coming. Okay, I know the great question. Everybody wants to know, well, when he's coming. Now, I would love to tell you when he's coming, but I can't tell you when he's coming because Jesus himself even says he can't tell you when he's coming. Only God the Father knows. And when it is time, God the Father is going to send Jesus Christ back to this earth. But Jesus does tell us some things that are going to happen before he returns. And he tells us we're going to be able to know the season, basically, in which he returns. Just like right now, I can look outside. Do you know? I can tell what season it is, and I hate it. I do not like January, February. I hate it. I'm ready to get rid of it. Anybody else? It's dreary. It's yucky. Let's get rid of that. Um, Yeah, it's coming. March is coming, but it'll be a glimpse of spring, maybe. But you know what season you're in, right? So Jesus says you're going to know the season just before he comes back. So this is what I believe is going to happen just before Jesus Christ is coming back. I believe the season is going to be just like the book of Acts. I believe God is going to do again what he has already done. And I believe the church is going to end just like the church started. I believe that because I believe that's what God's Word teaches. I mean, Jesus says it, Acts 2.42, read it for yourself. But he tells you just like he did in the book of Acts, he's going to do it again. The same thing through the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to do it again. Okay, now here is what you got to understand that I believe. Now, I know some people don't believe this, but I can back it up pretty good with the Bible. Okay, I know that what most people think, especially in the Baptist tradition, they think that what starts the tribulation is what? The rapture of the church, okay? Jesus Christ coming to rapture the church out of this world, and then the tribulation begins. I do not believe that. I don't believe that's possible according to God's Word. And here's why I don't believe that's possible according to God's Word. I know, according to the Bible, that during the tribulation time, people are saved, right? They are, if you don't know that. They're saved because Revelation talks about that, okay? There's tribulation saints. There are people that are saved and give their life to Jesus Christ during the tribulation. Okay, that happens. Okay, I don't believe that people can be saved without two things. The most important one is the Holy Spirit of God, right? Okay, I mean, Jesus talks about that in the book of John before the cross. You need the Holy Spirit to be saved, why? Because the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and it convicts you and leads you to righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You gotta have the Holy Spirit to have salvation. Okay, on this earth right now, where is the Holy Spirit of God? It's in us, right? Okay, so what happens if us are raptured when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, which we are going to be raptured, but what happens to us? Well, the word rapture means to be snatched up, to be taken away. We're gone, right? Okay, so if we're gone, who goes with us? The presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, second part of that is what is God's plan for salvation on this earth? How has he made a way for people to know about Jesus? Through the Word, through the church. Because what does the church do? Tell about Jesus. They share the Word of God. So the church has to share the Word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And so you have to have the Word of God. You have to have the story about Jesus. You have to have people telling about Jesus through His Word. And you have to have the Holy Spirit. Well, if we're gone... That's going to be difficult, right? Just going to be difficult. That is God's way. Okay, so I don't believe the rapture of the church begins the tribulation. I don't believe that. I believe persecution of the church begins tribulation. That's what I believe. I believe the church is going to be persecuted. Now, what have we been studying in the book of Acts? We've been studying about the persecution of the church. Guess what we're going to study about in Acts chapter 12? The persecution of the church. That's what it's about. But what does God do with and through the persecution of the church? Where does the gospel go? Where he said it was supposed to go in the beginning in Acts 1-8, he said, hey, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses everywhere, telling about me everywhere. And then he tells where, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it took persecution to do that in the book of Acts. Unfortunately for us, it's gonna take persecution again to do it before the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I wish it didn't take persecution, but are we going to do it in our of ourselves? No. no. Have we done it in two thousand years? No. It's going to take persecution, and so just like the church was persecuted in the book of Acts, that's what's going to happen on this earth again. And it's going to be not just pockets of the church. Like there's persecution of the church all over the world right now. I mean, go to North Korea, spend some time there if you would like to as a Christian. I don't think you want to, but there are pockets that our church is being persecuted heavily all around the world. But I'm talking about the church, the whole church of Jesus Christ is going to be persecuted like we've never been persecuted before. And I believe that is the beginning of the tribulation. And I believe that's what finally gets us to Matthew 24:14, Because Jesus says, what has to happen before the end comes? All the nations must hear. And so the only way the nations are going to hear all the peoples of this earth are going to hear is through the persecution of the church, just like it was in the book of Acts. And then I believe Revelation 14, Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to take us out. The earth is going to be harvested and all the Christians are going to be gone. And then I believe the bad part of Revelation happens. I believe the wrath of God is poured out on this earth because his bride is gone. But that's how I believe the rapture, the tribulation happens. I just don't, I wish, I really wish it was pre-trib and we got out of here before the tribulation started, but I don't believe that. I believe it's somewhere in between, in the middle somewhere. And so that's why the book of Acts is so important. Not only so you will know what's happening when it happens, but so that you will be ready and you will do what God has called you to do when it happens. Now that could be tomorrow. If my scenario is correct, it could be next week, next year, I don't know. It could be 20 years, 50 years from now. But I believe we're living in the time where we're getting very close to the return of Christ. I just believe that from a world perspective, a spiritual perspective. I just believe that with all my heart. I believe if you can't see that, you're just not looking at the seasons. Okay. So I want you to be ready. And so even though I believe we're getting close to that, whatever close means, before we get to that, there are two things I really want you to have and to know according to God's Word. Because I believe as we get closer and closer, the most important thing you can do or the church can do, and you should know this, is to pray. Okay? Because I believe that's how God works in your life, and I believe that's how God works in general. He works through the prayers of His people. So I believe the church must be about prayer. And when we pray, we must pray how? In faith. Okay? Now, there are two things you see here in Acts chapter 12. and So I want to talk about that just a little. And so just to set it up, we'll read it again because we probably have people here that haven't been here. But at the beginning of Acts chapter 12, it starts out by talking about a man named Herod Agrippa And you see several Herods in the Bible, especially at the beginning of Jesus. So this is the third Herod we've seen. They're all related. And so you see Herod the Great. And then you see Herod Antipas at the death of Jesus. You see him there at that point. You also see him at the death of John the Baptist because he kills John the Baptist. And now we see Herod Agrippa. So this is just a family. Herod the Great is the grandfather of Herod Agrippa. Okay, so Herod Agrippa is in charge. And he's king of all Judea. Now, he has bought that kingship. His family bought that kingship from Rome, but they bought it and they still get to do things. Now, they're not the final authority. They're not really in control. I kind of explain it like this. It's kind of like the king of England now. That's what they are. That's what he was, okay? A lot of it's just ceremony. A lot of it's pomp and circumstance, but he's the king. And Rome will let him do things if they allow it. Does that make sense? So they have to allow it. Okay, so one thing that they allow him to do is to persecute Christians because they don't care about Christians. And so he, they allow him to persecute Christians, so he does. So what he does is he has James, John's brother, the Apostle John's brother, he has him beheaded, okay? And the Romans love it. And they love it so much, and the people in the city love it so much that he arrests Peter And he's going to do the exact same thing to Peter that he did to James. Now, the Bible's clear here that he does not do it during the Passover. And the reason he does not do it in the Passover is because they don't kill prisoners during the Passover. That's a sacred time in Jerusalem. And everybody from all over the world, all Jews, come to Jerusalem to worship Passover. Now, the only exception to that was Jesus, and we talked about that because he is the Lamb of God, slain for the world. Jesus set that up, but they don't ever kill prisoners at Passover except for Christ. So they're holding Peter in prison, waiting for Passover to end, and then they're going to try him, and then they're going to behead him. That's what Herod Agrippa is going to do. So finally, at this point, the church does what they should have been doing all along, according to verse 5. They start praying. And not only do they pray, the Bible says that they earnestly pray. Now, that word earnestly, all that means is they were stretched out before God. So it just means they were on the floor with their face before God, knowing there is no one else who can help. So we are praying to you fervently, earnestly, continually. That's what they're doing. You're going to see that they're continually praying through this. Okay? That's what they're doing. So I just want you to see the story because there's just fun stuff here. So let me just read it so I don't mess it up. But look at verse 6. So as the church is praying, this is what happens. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, get dressed, put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize that it was actually happening. They passed through the first and the second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street and then the angel suddenly left them. Peter finally came to his senses. It's literally true, he said. The Lord has sent all has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door and the gate and the servant girl named Rhoda came and opened it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed and instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said when she insisted, and it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued to knock. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James the, and the other brothers what had happened, he said, and then he went to another place. Okay, now that is an incredible story with a lot of practicality for us because we're a lot, or I can see myself anyway, a lot in this story. But here's a question for you. We know what the church was doing the night before Peter was to go on trial to be beheaded. What do you think Peter was doing the night before his trial, before he was to be beheaded? Well, that's the one thing we know. He was asleep, right? He had peace. He did. He had told him that. So what was he doing? Was he doing anything else but sleeping? Now now here's the thing, I don't know exactly what he was... I can't tell you exactly this. This is conjecture on my part, but it's biblical conjecture, I think. I mean, I think at some point during this prison sentence, he had to pray, right? Okay, now we don't know how many days he's in prison. We know Passover festival's eight days. We don't know exactly at what point of the Passover he's arrested, but probably not the last day of Passover. He's arrested sometime during Passover. So he's probably been sitting in jail for at least a few days, okay? He's been in jail for a while. He might have been witness. We don't know. We weren't told that. But I, here's why I think he was praying. Peter had been in a very similar situation to this before. Okay? Several times, by the way. But if you go back to the days of Jesus, Jesus was about to be arrested. And so, what did Jesus do? He prayed but what else did Jesus do? He took three guys with him into the garden. It says into the inner garden with him. And what did he ask them to do? He asked them to pray. Peter, James, and John. Now James just been beheaded and Peter knew he had just been beheaded. One of his closest friends. Okay. Now that night before the cross, did Peter, James, and John pray? No, they slept. They did not know the urgency of the hour, did they? No, they did not know the urgency of the hour. They did not know what Jesus Christ was going through. They had no clue. So rather than praying, rather than keeping watch, as Jesus tells them, keep watch, which means to pray, they slept, okay? Then when they came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? No, he didn't. He didn't take off at first. Now, he eventually did. He jacked out a sword, and he cut off Malchus's ear. Okay, now here's a great question. Why do you think he cut off that ear? Why do you think he pulled out his sword? Was it to save Jesus? Heck no, it was to save himself. How do we know that? Well, just a few hours later, he's standing in the courtyard of Caiaphas and a little slave girl comes up to him and he cusses her like a dog so he can save his own hide. And then he runs and he hides. He didn't see Jesus crucified. He doesn't see the cross because he's trying to save himself, right? So he experienced that, he knew what that was like. Okay, but this isn't the first time Peter's been arrested and tried in the book of Acts. Okay, we have a couple of times where Peter is arrested and tried in the book of Acts. Okay, Acts chapter four, he is brought in and he's tried. They let him go, but they tell him, never speak in the name of Jesus again. Well, what did Peter do? He spoke in the name of Jesus again, and what did they do? They arrested him again, you can read Acts chapter five and they arrest him again, and it's a kind of a similar story to this. What happens? Miraculously, an angel comes, and they're freed, and what does the angel say? Go back to the place you're arrested and preach the good news about Jesus Christ. They did it. Guess what happens to them? They're arrested again, and they're taken to this same place, the Fortress Antonia, where Peter is held in Acts chapter 12, and then they scourged them, flogged them. That's what happens to the 12 disciples of Jesus, the apostles. And then they let them go. So Peter understands what it means to be arrested. But now this was a little different because he's been arrested and he's been told, don't preach in the name of Jesus. He's been arrested and he's been scourged. Now that's bad enough in and of itself if you know what a scourging is. We talk about that a lot at Easter time. But now this is life and death situation now, right? Because one of his best friends has just been beheaded and now he's next. I have to think he prayed, right? Okay, now here's a question about his prayer. How much faith did he pray with? He had been promised a long life. His faith gave, he, he was asleep, so his faith gave peace. And he knew God was faithful okay. and would give him long life. He did know, he knew all that. So. But again, I ask the question how much faith did he pray with? Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That, I think it's not as much faith as you give him credit for. Just my opinion, but maybe I'm wrong. And here's why I say that when God answered the prayer, did he believe it? He didn't believe it. This is a vision. This is a dream. This ain't really happening. And then eventually he comes to his senses when he's walking the streets of Jerusalem, right? Well, daggum, it did happen. Okay, so how much faith did he pray with? Well, I I can't answer that. But here's another question. Okay, the church is praying, and how are they praying at the same time that Peter's in prison? Earnestly crying out before God God save Peter. We didn't pray for James like we should have prayed for James. And look what happens to James. Now we're praying for Peter. Save Peter, Lord, and earnestly crying out before God. Now, how much faith did they pray with? Probably not a lot because they were surprised. I mean, Peter's standing at the door, and what are they still doing? That ain't Peter. God, please save Peter. That's what they're doing, right? So I can't answer you how much faith they have. I, I don't know. But here's what I want you to know. We do not have to have perfect faith for God to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? Anybody in this room got perfect faith? I'll put both my hands behind my back if you want me to do that. I mean, nobody's got perfect faith. Nobody's got 100% faith, however you want to say it, right? Okay, that's just who we are. And this story represents that, I mean, very well. But thank God he still answers prayers when we don't have great faith. But here's the question, why don't we? I mean, seriously, when we pray, why don't we have great faith? Expecting God to send an angel. Expecting God for miracles expecting God to do all the things we read about in his word. Has God changed? Nope. Not according to his word. He don't change. Why don't we pray with 100% confidence and 100% faith, knowing God is going to move? Why? A lot of times we haven't seen it, right? Sure. Yep. Well, of course. I mean, there's always, I mean, no matter, and this is just me, maybe it's not you, but no matter what you've seen God do, no matter what you know God has done and what He says He's going to do, there's always doubt, right? That's just who we are. We're feeble and we're flesh. And, I mean, I I heard this a long time ago. One of the best definitions of faith that I've ever heard is faith is belief plus doubt, but you act on the belief. And that's kind of what it is. I mean, if you get on an airplane, do you believe that airplane is going to take off and you're going to fly? Well, probably you wouldn't get on the airplane in the first place, right? Okay. Is there doubt that... That plane could crash and burn. Yeah, there's a chance of that. But if you get on that plane, what are you acting upon, the doubt or the faith? You're acting on the faith, right, on the belief. Okay, so I don't know that we'll ever on this earth have 100% faith. I hope I can, and I hope I'm growing and my faith is growing in that. But I don't know that I'll ever have 100% without any fear, without any doubt. But I believe that's where the Bible wants us to be, to get closest to that as possible. I mean, here's another reason I think when we pray in faith that we have issues with that. Uh, sometimes I think that we want to give God a cop-out. And, I, and I, let me say it like this. Of course, we don't know what God's going to do, Right? If you do, come tell me about it, okay? I don't always know what God's going to do. Now, there's some things I know He's going to do because His Word says it. There's a lot of things. I sure don't know how we're going to get there, what He says, right? Okay? So when we pray, it's almost like we're protecting the honor of God. And so we pray in ways and in terms so that if He doesn't do it exactly like we pray it, it'll be okay. Yeah. And we should pray that. But we pray it in almost a cop-out mode. Does that make sense? Okay, because I don't know why, but we know a lot of people don't believe in God. We know a lot of people don't believe in miracles, even in the church, things like that. And so we just want to make sure nobody can say anything bad against God. Or maybe us for praying and believing the way we breathe. Maybe it's more of that than God. But please understand, God don't need your help, okay? He don't need your protection. And he don't need your honor. He just chooses to work through your prayers. So how are we to pray? Are we to pray in the will of God? Well, that's pretty important if you want your prayers answered. Okay? The problem is we don't always know the will of God, right? Okay, that's why I tell you to pray Bible, because when you pray the Bible, you know you're praying the will of God. But you still have to pray in faith, even if you don't know what God's going to do or how He's going to do it. You just pray and you believe. Right? Okay, here's why. Here's why. When we don't pray in faith, when we don't act in faith, when we don't move in faith, that's one of the ways you can quench the Holy Spirit of God in your life, the power of God in your life. You realize that? Let me just read this to you. This is a story about Jesus in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 6. Now, just so you know what's happening here. In Mark chapter 6, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. This is not long after he has been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. What happens at the baptism when Jesus is baptized? We know the Holy Spirit of God falls on him like a dove. And we know according to Luke chapter 4, he is filled with the power of God, Luke 4.14, okay? He comes out of the wilderness after being tempted by the devil filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So he goes around and he starts healing people. He speaks to a storm and it's still, okay? He raises Jairus's daughter. He cast out a legion of demons and this news is spreading about him everywhere. Now for the first time in his ministry, after all this happens, he comes back to his hometown. He comes back to Nazareth, that area, that region. Okay, this is what happens. Mark 6, just listen. Jesus left that part of the country, and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did we, he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He is just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. Now, did their doubt, did their unbelief affect what God was going to do among them? It limited it, right? I mean, it says it right there. It says it. It limited the power of God, their unbelief, and it amazed Jesus. Why did it amaze Jesus? Because they had heard what he had done. I mean, how many people... Have you known that can raise a child from the dead? You know anybody like that? Okay, they knew that story. They knew that he spoke to a storm. Peace be still. And guess what happened? It was still. It calmed. They had heard all of these stories. They had heard that Jesus could cast out demons. But now, when he is among them, doing the same works... They don't believe it. And it limits what God can do in your life and through your life. That's what doubt, that's what unbelief does. Now again, am I saying that you have to have 100% faith for God to move and to work in your life and through your life? No, because I don't think we ever will have that type of faith. I wish we did. Well, that was a good ringtone. (laughs) But I wish we did. But we don't, right? Right? Okay, but do I believe you need to have as much faith as you can when you pray? Yes, I believe that. You know why I believe that? Because Jesus says it. Okay, another story where Jesus was amazed by faith, and it wasn't in his hometown, but if you go read Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, it starts out by saying a Roman officer, a centurion, sends some elders to come to Jesus And he just asked Jesus, says, Jesus, will you please come to my house? I have a servant who is dying, and he is precious to me. He's important to me, and I know that you can heal him. Will you come to my house and heal him? And for whatever reason, Jesus goes. He says, sure, I'll go. And so as they're walking to the house of this centurion, the centurion starts thinking about it, and so he sends another one to Jesus, and this is what the one that comes to Jesus says. He says, Jesus, my master has said that he is not worthy of having you come into his home. And he knows that you don't even have to be here to heal his servant. If you will just say the word, he knows that his servant will be healed. And you know what Jesus does? He can't believe what he's hearing. He says, I have not heard or seen this type of faith in all of Israel. And does Jesus speak that his servant's healed? Does he do anything to heal his servant? Nope. But guess what happens when that one goes back to the centurion's home? What does he find? The servant healed. And the Bible says that Jesus is amazed by his faith. Okay, now think. This is a Roman officer. This is not a Jew. He didn't grow up hearing stories about the Red Sea being parted. He didn't hear stories about Elijah calling down fire from heaven. He didn't know any of this stuff that the God of Abraham could do but he believed in Jesus and he believed in his authority and he believed in his power and he believed it pretty strongly, enough to say, you ain't even got to come to my house if you want to, just say the word, he's healed. And what did that faith do? It changed things, right? It changed the situation. It changed the environment because that's what our faith does. That's what faith does. When we pray that way, Privately, personally, but especially when we pray that way corporately together. Now, here's just another reason I want you to understand that corporate prayer is so important. Okay, just let's talk about this room right now. Not our whole church, but just this room right now. Okay, there are, there are levels of faith in this room. Do some people have more faith than others? Yeah, of course they do. That's just biblical. Now, there are many reasons for that. okay. So when we gather corporately, there are different levels of faith, right? My faith might be strong today. Your faith might be weak. Guess what? Tomorrow it might be different. Something might happen in my life that weakens my faith. I mean, I love Toby Lancaster. You think his faith is weakened today? Of course it is. He just lost his son. Of course it is. Okay? So as a follower of Christ and as a brother of Christ, what am I to do in his stead? Be his faith, pray in faith for him when he can't pray in faith, right? That's what the church is for. That's why we gather together. That's when we come and join hands and pray corporately together in faith, fervently, earnestly before God because we strengthen one another in that. But not only that, God works through our prayers and our faith cumulative combined and it makes our faith stronger together than if we were apart. Is that not just the way it is? If you are isolated by yourself, is your faith weakened? Yes. Heck yeah. I love Peter, but my favorite character in the Bible is Elijah. Okay, and my of my favorite stories in the Bible is 1 Kings 18 and 1 Kings 19. In 1 Kings 18, do you know what Elijah's doing on top of Mount Carmel? He's calling down fire from heaven. And how does he do it? He just prays. And he believes God's going to answer his prayer. Why? Because God had answered his prayer earlier when he told the king there ain't going to be a drought for a while. They'd been trying to kill him ever since. But then he goes to the top of Mount Carmel, and he's the only prophet of God, and there's 400 prophets of Baal, and there's prophets of Asherah, and they're going to decide that day on top of Mount Carmel, who's the one true God of Israel. And so he lets them go first, and they pray all stinking day, basically. And their God does nothing. But then Elijah stands up and he rebuilds the altar of the God, the Bible says. He pours water all over it and then he just stands and prays. And what does God do? (laughs) Answers with power, answers with fire. And the Bible says every person atop that mountain fell prostrate and they cried out, He is God, He is God. And so on that mountain, Elijah stood victorious with his God. But you know what happens the very next stinking day? Not the next week, not the next month, not the next year. The very next stinking day, he goes out into the wilderness and he sits down under a broom tree, a juniper tree. Oh, I wish I was dead. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to kill me? Everybody hates me? God, you've even forsaken me. The very next day. Is that not who we are and that's not how our faith works? Well, if you don't know it, that's how your faith works. I wish it wasn't that way, but that's who we are, right? That's why we need each other. That's why you need a church. That's why you cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't do it according to God's word. You can't do it. And if you're trying to do it, you are out of God's will, period, 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 period. You're out of God's will. We need one another to build one another up, to strengthen our faith. That's the way God made it. That's the way God intended it. And I'm telling you, it's going to get really, really important as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Really important. Because guess where you ain't going to be able to go to be built up and to be encouraged and to be strengthened? Anywhere out there. Because they are going to wallop you and persecute you like you cannot believe. But when we come together, wherever we come together, it might not be this place. It might not be this building. We might not be able to do that. We might have to go to the home of Mary, John Mark's mother. I mean, who knows? We might have to go to homes, but guess what? We still go to homes, and we come together, and we pray, and we pray for one another, and we pray for God to move in faith because that's how He does it, and that's what we need. That's what we need. There's one more verse because this is important because I love this. Look at verse 16 just real quick. Because this is while the church was praying, and they finally... Get up off their knees to go to the door. Acts 12, 16. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were what? They were astonished. They were amazed. I'm telling you, no matter how much faith you got, every time God does something, you need to stand in amazement. You need to stand in amazement of God. Because what he does is amazing. And you need that you need that you need that so don't ever get too cocky don't ever get too arrogant (laughs) stand in amazement amen amen i've told you this story i don't know how many times probably more than you want to hear but one of my favorite sayings i ever heard was from a little missionary in africa And this was at a Billy Graham evangelism conference in Amsterdam. He brought 10,000 evangelists from all over the world to train them. And this was the first night, actually, of the conference, 10-day conference. This little missionary was getting up, telling all the things God was doing in the middle of Africa, where he was from. I mean, it was amazing stories, amazing stories, amazing stories. I mean, things I had never heard. But his last statement, his last statement that he said in front of all these 10,000 evangelists, this is what he said. He said, our God is bigger here in Africa because we need him more. And it's true. They needed God more than I did in America. Because if I'm sick, you know what I do? Yeah, I go to the doctor. I go to the pantry and get some medicine or I go to the drugstore. I do something to fix my problem, right? If I'm hungry, what do I do? I got a lot of places I can go, right? And I can get whatever I want to eat. But not there. If they're sick and God doesn't move, you know what happens? They die. If they're hungry and God doesn't provide, they starve. I'm just telling you, when you need God, and when you need Him the most, He's going to be bigger than you've ever known. And I'm just telling you, as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus, we're going to see the bigness and the greatness of God. And even when we see it, let's stand amazed. Amen. And let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next week as Pastor John continues the study. And if you're looking for more, find us at northportbaptist.org.